Today's episode of the Read More podcast is brought to you by the Miami Book Fair International. Eight days each November and all year round with writing workshops, author events, and more. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Read More podcast, a show that brings readers and writers together. I'm your host, Marva Hinton. Today we're broadcasting from Miami's Freedom Tower. The federal government used this building during the 1960s to process refugees from Cuba. Our guest today, Chantel Acevedo, is the daughter of Cuban immigrants, and her latest novel, The Distant Marvels, is set in 1963. But much of the action is looking back to Cuba's fight for independence from Spain that took place in the late 1800s. You can find out how to win a free signed copy of her book on our website, readmorepodcast.com. Chantel, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Marv. I'm excited to be here. Your narrator, Maria Serena, is 82 when the novel opens and a hurricane is approaching Cuba. She doesn't want to leave her home by the sea, but she and several other mostly elderly women are forced to evacuate by the Castro government. While they're cooped up in a former governor's mansion, she tells them her life story, which is an epic tale of war and lost love. Why did you choose to use the story within a story framework here? I was really interested in telling um, a long history of Cuba, which it would include the revolution of 1959, as well as the Cuban War of Independence from Spain. And so the only way to manage that is to have a character who is, who is quite old, right, so that her life is bookended by these two events. Um, and I didn't necessarily want it to have a linear structure. And so the frame made a lot of sense to me to open in 1963 and then to back up into her, her childhood um, during the War of Independence from Spain. And I was uh, really influenced by some classical frame narratives like, you know, Chaucer, the Canterbury Tales or the Arabian Nights or, you know, um, just any number of them, right? There are so many. And as an English teacher, of course, those speak to my heart. Um, and they're just a very um, kind of archetype, archetypal way of, of telling a story. You know, it's, um, it makes sense to us as readers, as um, people who appreciate story, you know. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was my, my move with doing, with doing the frame. Both of Maria's parents were freedom fighters, even though her mother doesn't actually join her husband in battle. She and other wives of soldiers repair weapons for them, they set up field hospitals, they grow food and raise livestock to feed them. How important was it for you to shine a light on women's roles during this conflict? Very important. Um, Oftentimes when we think about the stories of war, we think of them as being written by men. And much of them are written by men, but there's all there's always a group of women who are in the shadows, uh, who are helping to propagate this war, support this war, support this struggle, um, either domestically at home or in more direct ways. And certainly in the uh, War of Independence from Spain, there were women fighters, and they were called the Mambisas. Um, these and they kind of evoke this kind of Amazonian you know, view of the woman warrior in the 19th century. Um, I didn't want to tell the story of Mambisa because I wanted to, I felt like that was a very dramatic story and one that, that has been told. Uh, for me, it was more interesting to think about these workshops or these talleres where women, out, especially in the eastern provinces, uh, were working to support the effort um, in the most crucial ways, which is with food and with weaponry and, and with makeshift hospitals. Um, and so that was the story I wanted to tell. But I did want to echo the Mambisas in a way because Maria Serena's mother, Lulu, 
wishes she could fight, and that's what she most desperately wants to do, um, but she can't. And so I have I kind of got it both ways. Well, this novel also includes historical figures such as the poet Jose Marti, who used his writing to urge the Cuban people to fight for independence, and then he ended up dying in battle. Was it difficult for you to write about someone who is so well-known and beloved in the Cuban community? Um, a little bit, because you want to make sure you, you honor it and you, you get it right. And he's not the only figure. He's the only figure, historical figure, who appears in person. Um, I do mention Antonio Maceo and sort of other, other heroes you know, of, that, of that war. I think I went around it by giving him sort of minimal space, really. Um, he interacts with the main characters in a small way. Uh, for me, it was great fun to give the readers his death because for Cubans and Cuban-Americans, that is so much a part of his, um, his myth, right? So Jose Martí gets on a, a... He has spent his, his you know, this, this great part of his life drumming up funds for this war in Tampa and in Boston and in New York and in Key West and then he finally gets to Cuba and now he's going to fight and he gets on his horse and it was a white horse of course and uh, immediately is shot off the horse right and so the 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 um the myth is that or the story is that he died with his face towards the sun right looking at the sun who knows if this is really what happened but it was every I think every Cuban child is told that story um, this, this story of great courage. And so it was very fun to have the characters talk about his death as it, as it just happened and for one of them to say, and, and I heard that he died in such a way. So it was fun to sort of explore the way that myths begin. Well, as you mentioned, you do also uh, touch on Antonio Maceo in this novel, a black man who was second in command of the Cuban Army of Independence. And you talk about how during the war with Spain, Cubans of all races were supposed to be united, but Afro-Cubans still faced racism. What were some of the interesting things you discovered about this while you were researching for the novel? So one of the interesting things I discovered was that Cuba was uh, the last country in the Western Hemisphere to abolish slavery. And I think we see that today in, in in Cuba and in the separation of races. Cuba, the government likes to say that there is no more racism on the island, but of course one needs only look at their, you know, their uh, government and you see that they're all sort of um, people of European descent and no Afro-Cubans in sight. Um, and we see the separation of races there a little bit more clearly than in other places in the Caribbean who abolished slavery much earlier. So that was an interesting um, thing for me to discover and one of the sort of an important character in the novel is a freed slave. Um, who was very important to Maria Sirena, um, and so that was that was interesting. That was interesting for me, and that was that was quite revealing. Some of the most wrenching scenes in this novel take place when Maria and her mom Lulu are forced by Spanish soldiers to relocate to a concentration camp. And when we hear those words, we think of the Nazis and World War II. How do the two compare? So that was my way into the novel at first. I didn't, when I first started working towards this book, I didn't actually think I was writing a book. It was curiosity that led me towards investigating the War of Independence from Spain. I realized at some point that even though I'm Cuban-American, this was a war I didn't know anything about. I knew Jose Martin, Antonio Maceo, and very little beyond that. 
Um, and the very first thing I stumbled upon were some photos of the reconcentration camps, which is what they were called. And at first I thought I was in the wrong place. I thought I had found um, pictures of the Holocaust, uh, of, of World War II. And after a little bit of you know, investigating, I realized, no, these are 19th century pictures, and this is Cuba. So this policy of reconcentration uh, was enacted uh, by Spain, um, led by General Whaler, whose nickname was The Butcher. And the idea was not so much to remove people and put them in a camp, but to uh, encircle their villages and basically starve them. Um, we're seeing a lot of this actually in, happening now in Syria on a much grander scale. Entire cities are being choked off from food and water. Um, but here, we're, these were small, right? Um, and so if you look at the pictures of reconcentration camps, they look hauntingly similar um, to the Holocaust. Um, it was one of the earlier versions of that. Um, Hitler se seemed to have been inspired by the Armenian uh, concentration camps, um, but who is to say, you know, that he saw some of this too? I mean, it, it was it was effective in the most gruesome way. So that was my way my way into into the story. You include lots of Spanish phrases in the novel. Why did you make the decision to do that? It, it's something that I've always done. You know, this kind of multilingual sort of braiding of the two languages. I, you know, I, I was born and raised in Miami. Um, bilingual, I tend to go to English first. You know, I, I, I tend to think and I dream in English. But sometimes in moments of high emotion, I slip right into Spanish. And I almost hate saying that because it sounds like this terrible cliche, like a Ricky Ricardo, right? Like when he would get excited, he would start to yell at Lucy in Spanish. But there is something, I think, about moments of emotion, whether they're sadness or fear or excitement, that are so close to the heart. And so for me, Spanish is the language of the heart, and English is the language of the mind. And so both have to exist on the page when I'm talking about Cuban characters who um, are reaching these emotions and only have a particular way of, of saying it, you know? You have to be careful to make sure that when you slip into another language, that it is sort of clear uh, contextually. If not entirely clear, at least the mood or the tone of it, you know, is, is evident to a reader who, who perhaps only speaks English. But yeah, there are some words that just are not as evocative only in English. They make sense to me in Spanish. Can you give me some examples of those? Um, yeah, I think some of them are endearments, right? We don't, we, when we hear someone say in English, my dear or my love, it sounds old-fashioned or it sounds like something grandma says to you. Um, but in Spanish, I think we're much closer to those those kinds of endearments. So, mi amor, mi tesoro, mi corazón, te quiero. Like, they, they come easier, you know, um, in Spanish than they do in English. And even Spanish love songs, if you translate them, they sound so cheesy in English. They just are awful. They wouldn't fly. But in Spanish, they're they're touching and beautiful and they make sense. So again, it's, it's those moments of high emotion, and love is one of them. Although your parents are from Cuba, mm -hmm. you've never been to the island yourself. Does that make it harder for you when you write a novel like this that is set in Cuba? Do you depend on your research, what you've heard from your family? What do you go to there? Oh, absolutely. It's something I think about, and... Um, I haven't, you're right, I haven't been to Cuba. I would love to go to Cuba, you know, and, and I want to go, and I want to go soon. Um, but I think part of, you know, what I've been able to do is, is because I'm writing about Cuba at a different time. Um, my first novel was set in the 1930s. 
um, my next novel, Saint Cuba, was set partly in Cuba, but mainly in the United States in the 80s, which I lived and so I can do. And then this one is the 19th century. So I've been writing about Cubas that don't exist anymore, you know, um, in the same way that someone who's writing a sci-fi novel and writing about Mars is going to make it up because obviously they've not been. Um, so I think there's a lot that invention can give you and make up for. And research, of course, is something you rely on, on old maps of the time and photographs and everybody's Flickr streams. Thank you, people with your Flickr streams. <laughs> um, and all of that, I, you know, I rely on. But I definitely feel that it'll be curious going to Cuba and to see what it does to my sense of, of the place, whether it heightens it or perhaps has the opposite effect. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what, what actually going there, you know, will be like for me creatively. So what are you working on now? So I'm working on something now that is primarily not set in Cuba, so that's different for me. It is the 19th century again. Um, I got very interested in the life of um, this princess of Spain. Again, it seems so different from when I've... It's really outside of my typical uh, wheelhouse, but um, the Infanta Eulalia was the youngest daughter of, of Isabel II, um, a Bourbon princess, and she was the only... Um, royal family member to ever go to Cuba since the time of Columbus, right? She was the only one that's ever, ever been. And she went during the height of the War of Independence, and she was quite beloved by the people in Havana. They loved her. They did not want to let her go. And she was, I believe, pro-independence for Cuba. So she's a fascinating character to me. So I've been writing about her and, more specifically, her wet nurse, because another parallel concern has been who are these people who, who, who serve these very, very wealthy um, families? Um, how do they sense their own kind of destiny in the world? And how is it marked, you know, by these, by these royal people? As you mentioned earlier, you teach at the University of Miami in the MFA program. How does teaching English affect your work? Well, it absolutely does, and I've been teaching a long time. This is my uh, first year at the University of Miami. Um, I'm back home again um, after being at Auburn University for nine years and teaching creative writing there. Um, I think in many ways it affects, affects your writing. One, it's in the reading. You know, you're assigning students reading, and you are reading along with them, you know, and, you, and I try to change up the novels and so try to keep abreast of what's, of what is, is happening sort of in the literary landscape. So that's one thing. I think another thing is that when you're preparing a lesson, you're thinking about issues of craft. And so often, I think for most professors of creative writing, the issues of craft that concerns us are the ones that are troubling us. You know, and so if I'm struggling with with pacing, I might do an exercise with the students. That's a pacing exercise. Um, one, it's helpful to them, but it's helpful to me too. I can work it out with them, and I often write alongside with them. Um, so for me, it's always been helpful and generative, um, and and just really, you know, when you get down about the industry, all you have to do is you know go back to your class, and you see these young people who are so excited about telling their stories and uh, writing their novels and their poems that you feel a little bit better about the future. What is your favorite novel to teach? Oh my goodness. Okay, so you have presented a hard question. I think my favorite novel to teach is, um, and this might surprise folks, but remember I was in Alabama for nine years, is Lewis Norton, who was a Mississippi writer, and he was the um, director of the creative writing program at the University of Pittsburgh. And he has this novel, which is basically a set of linked short stories called Music of the Swamp. And it is, to me, one of the most beautiful books ever written. And it's set during pre-civil rights, the pre-civil rights era in the United States in Mississippi. 
Um, he touches upon the murder of Emmett Till. He touches upon sort of alcoholism in the family. Um, we follow the main character, Sugar Mecklin, who's got a, such a great name, and as a little boy through adulthood in these stories. And they're lyrical, and they're inspired by the blues. Um, and I don't know. I think it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever read, and I've read it now many, many times. Here at Read More, we really like to know how a writer's reading life affects her work. So can you tell us the first thing you read that really affected you and sort of changed the way that you saw yourself? Mm -hmm. I have two answers for this. I have the little bitty Chantel answer, which was when I was quite young, and I read Anne of Green Gables, and I knew instantly that I wanted to write novels. And I wanted them all to be about girls just like Anne in Canada. And so, <laughs> which made no sense to a girl in Hialeah, Florida. Um, but yet, there we are. And I devoured those books. And it was the first time I thought of, of writing as a possibility. And Anne herself is a, is, a, is a writer. And she recites poetry. And it was just my sort of nerdy English girl heart, you know, that she spoke to. So that's my first answer. Um, and I think we all have that childhood book, you know, that we will always love. Um, but my first, the first thing I read that I thought, this is actually a possibility for, for me, is uh, Christina Garcia's Dreaming in Cuban. And I was an undergraduate student, and I went to Westland Mall in Hialeah, and there it was, the Dalton Bookstore, and I couldn't believe it because I hadn't read up until that point any Latino writers. I'd read Jose Marti, and that's it. Um, and this is me at 19 or 20, living in Miami. Um, she That book, for me, opened up all kinds of possibilities that you could write in a multilingual way that you can write um, in, 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 in a nonlinear way that novel is epistolary and there are diary entries and all kinds of you know point of view changes um, which are very interesting to me and there's magic in it you know as well so that novel is I will always be indebted to the novel and to Christina Garcia herself as a novelist and as a mentor for what that did for me because it, I realized that this was possible right that the stories that I grew up with, the people I grew up with, were worthy of art. Um, and after that, it just, the doors blew open, right? Because once you read Cristina Garcia, you realize, but look, Julia Alvarez, and look, there's Sandra Cisneros, and then years later, Juno Diaz, and sort of, and Meg Medina, you know, who writes for children, and all these other Latino and Latina writers um, who just are laying down pavement, you know. Well, if you could no longer read any new work, mm. but you could only read three books um, that you have read in the past, mm -hmm. but you could read them as much as you wanted, mm -hmm. which books would you choose? Huh. I know you've already given us some of your favorites. I so so I'll, I'll won't say, I won't name the ones I've already named, right, just to be, just to toss it up a little bit. I think, okay, I think one of them would have to be like a big book. <laughs> and I think that one would be maybe Juno Diaz's The Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde. Because it's so big and it has all those footnotes and the writing is so spectacular in that one that I feel like you could just pop in at any moment into the book and, and just be really satisfied. Um, another book I think, let's see, I think I would probably, I would probably bring The Lord of the Rings 
I don't know, I'd, I'd cheat and bring all three and count them as one. Um, and I do sort of have eclectic reading tastes, you know? I like literary fiction, but I love poetry, and I love fantasy novels and mysteries and, and all those things. And I think The Lord of the Rings was, I'm not a crier, but that book made me cry at the end. And I, as soon as I closed the book, and, you know, you get to the end and Frodo's off with the elves, you know, and the story's over, and I found myself, like, weeping at the end, and I realized I was crying because it was over. And I read this as an adult, by the way. This is not, like, a childhood, you know? Um... Yeah, it was, I was just the experience of it, I think, was, was really beautiful and, and mythic, you know, the world that he built. So that's two. And then I think the third, I think the third thing I might read, oh, I'd probably uh, bring Sylvia Plath's Ariel, uh, which is her poetry book, and it's sort of cheesy for a poet to, you know, to always, Sylvia Plath is like the go-to, right? The go-to poet. But I think that book to me is probably my favorite book of poems. The language is so precise and beautiful, and sort of the pain she was feeling is it's it's both deep and on the surface if that makes any sense you know um and I've read that book a million times too you mentioned that you read widely and you don't just read literary fiction do you ever think that you might write something in a different genre that you might write a fantasy novel or just something you haven't done before Well, I have written poetry, and I've got a little chapbook out that's just out um, from Finishing Line Press called En Otro Oz, which means In Another Oz, and it imagines Cuba as a kind of Oz, right? Um, Technicolor and all. So poetry I do sometimes. So I, I I do tend to go towards literary novel and the literary novel that is historical in scope. You know, that seems to be my go-to thing. But I do really, really love, particularly love young adult fiction. I taught high school for a long time. And I am one of those people who really likes teenagers. You know, I think a lot of people don't like teenagers once they no longer are one. Um, But I really appreciate their sense of passion I think it's the time in your life when you feel things most passionately, most strongly, and yet you are so powerless to do any of it. You can't vote. You probably can't drive. You know, if you, and if you can, you don't actually have a car. Um, you can't pay your bills, any of those things. And that, that, that tension between I want and I can't um, is always intriguing to me. And I feel, I feel like YA in the last 10 years has had such a renaissance. And I know people talk about, you know, the big books, right? Like Twilight and Hunger Games, which are genre books and they're fantastic. But I think particularly in the last two or three years, contemporary YA, which is um, a little bit more literary in its sensibilities, a little bit more realistic, uh, is so compelling to me. And I think there are stories there to be told. So maybe one day you maybe might write one? Yes, I think so. I think, I mean, I've been really st- quite seriously thinking about it. Um, and it's, it's, I've got some notes for something after this princess book is written. Well, we talked about these books that you love and that really touched you and the ones that you would read if you could, they were the only ones you could read. Um, on the flip side of that, is there a well-known book that you struggled with or that you couldn't get through or you did get through it and then you just found out it really wasn't for you? Mm. So I think I'll give you two answers to that question. The first was a book I did struggle with and um, I didn't necessarily, I won't reread it, I don't think, but I really appreciated what it was doing and I find myself thinking about it a lot and that's A Visit from the Goon Squad, um, which was a really well-loved and, and book and it, it earned all of these accolades 
And I, I couldn't seem to find my way into sort of its very dark sense of the world. And it may be, you know, that I just wasn't of the right mind. And I think sometimes books come to you at the wrong time. And this may be the case with that one. And so while I didn't quite enjoy reading it, I can't stop thinking about it sometimes, particularly the last chapter, which, you know, if your listeners may have read, which presents this, this dystopian America. And I, and I sort of see how it was a little bit visionary, you know, ever since. I and mean, it was just recently. It wasn't recently published but a couple of years ago from then to now some of those things are happening actually um so it's a book that disturbed me really and i won't dip in again but i do think about it a lot and then a book i struggled with and that it nearly killed me to read it but i finished it and thought this was so worth it was um the first book in the hillary mantel henry the eighth series which was wolf hall and it's about cromwell who's henry the eighth's advisor and the prose is so beautiful but she does this funky thing with pronouns where you don't know who is he. And I think it's, it's purposeful, right? This is Hilary Mantel. She's a giant, you know, and so a literary giant. And so, yes, it's, it's totally purposeful, but it was so hard to read. And it wasn't until, and I think I'm a pretty smart person, not until like the two-thirds into it. I, I figured out how to read it. And the sensation was like reading Shakespeare for the first time. When you, as a kid, are thinking to yourself, this is madness. This is not even English. And then something clicks in your brain and you get it. And that was the experience of reading um, Wolf Hall. And then I just finished Bring Up the Bodies, which is part two. And it was a whole different experience. You can just sort of um, sail through it once you've gone through Wolf Hall. But I would say to a lot of people who I know who have told me, I gave up on Wolf Hall. It's just don't. Just push through that wall because I think it's so satisfying when you finally do. So what are you reading right now? Well, like I said, I just finished Bring Up the Bodies. And these books came out like in 2011. So I'm behind. I'm always behind on, on the reading. Um, so I just finished that one. And I am really looking forward to um, Patricia Engel's The Veins of the Ocean. And she's a Colombian-American writer and who lives in, here in Miami. So I can't wait to read Patricia's new book. And it's about the ocean and scuba diving and... and cool things like that. So that one is on my to-be-read list as well. Chantel Acevedo, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Marva. It was such a pleasure to meet you. Likewise. I also want to thank the Miami Book Fair International for hosting us today. You can find out how to win a free signed copy of The Distant Marvels on our website, readmorepodcast.com. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast. You can also find us on Facebook. Please join us again in two weeks for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton reminding you to read more.